Hi, I'm Lexi and this is Hannah and we're Wild About Conservation. This is the podcast where we explore the world of conservation through discussions with our very knowledgeable guests and this season's focus is on all things ocean. This is the episode where we're joined by a friend of ours, Heidi Meyer. She has a keen interest in sponges and the deep sea and is based at the University of Bergen in Norway. We go into all things sponge, what they are, what they eat and where they are, as well as her work with underwater robots, image analysis and life on research cruises. This is the ideal episode to learn about an underappreciated ecosystem engineer of our water environment. Hi, thank you for chatting to us today. So can you firstly introduce yourself to our listeners, who you are, what you do, your pronouns, and your key interest in conservation? Hi, I'm Heidi. I am a PhD student at the University of Bergen in Norway, and I look at the community, ecology, and biodiversity of deep sea sponge grounds in the Northeast Atlantic. And I mostly focus on a seamount in the Arctic Mid-Ocean Ridge called Schultz Bank. I go by she, her. My key interest in conservations is improving our knowledge on unique benthic habitats like sponge grounds to create a better system for protecting these habitats and their biodiversity. Wow, that is a very big thing, I feel, that is your key interest in conservation, but I'm really excited to get into it later on. But first, before we take a deep dive into sponges and conservation and everything else that you do, we do have a few quick fire questions that we like to ask our guests, which is like a little game to warm you up and kind of for us to get to know you. Is that all right? Yeah, shoot. Cool. So firstly, if you could fly, breathe underwater or hibernate, which would it be? Breathe underwater, 100%. Absolutely. That's what I said too. (laughs) Um... What is something that you're grateful for today? I am just grateful for my friends and family. They're very supportive. I love it so much. Okay, my husband's an emotional one. What is something that you love that has nothing to do with conservation? I love dogs. <laughs> I feel we're going to get along very well, Heidi. <laughs> say we might have a cat walking around in the background but uh not a dog this time anyway that's okay cats are cool too (laughs) um and finally every episode we ask our guests how they get wild about conservation the answers span from just reading a book and for me it's i think just being by the sea going for a swim going for a walk so heidi how do you get wild about conservation I get wild about conservation by going on hikes and just taking walks and listening to the birds. I love that. I absolutely feel you there. So you're studying at the University of Bergen. How long have you been there for? What's it like over there? I just want to know everything. How's the hiking style? Because all we've got at the moment is Pentlands. And I mean, we do have the Highlands, but we've not been able to go because of lockdown. Just tell me a little bit more. Yeah, so I've been in Bergen for almost three years now. It'll be three years in May. Uh, and it is a great city. It's it's very centralized. And so getting getting around town is very easy. And also getting to nature is super easy. Uh, a few like hiking trails right outside of uh, downtown Bergen that you can go up and then you're suddenly in the mountains and just like in this deep nature and it's amazing and it's a great city there's lots to do it's rainy all the time uh (laughs) but when it's not rainy mostly when people come and visit it's absolutely stunning when I first moved here it was like the best weather ever I feel like that's always a good place to start that hopefully when you see a place I remember the first time I went to Wales it was so sunny yeah and then I moved there and it was very rainy (laughs) but I got the sunshine the first time I went which was perfect um so because sponges I have to ask this first because Lexi is the queen of dad jokes what is your best sponge dad joke Heidi do you have one yeah so I had to have a think about it and the one I'm gonna go with is why are sponges so good at statistics I don't hmm. know. 
Why? Why, Heidi? Why? <laughs> it's because they understand correlations. That's awful, and I love it. <laughs> that so was <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. This is what I need. Can we start every podcast off with a joke? I specifically dad jokes they have to be at the level of dad joke um but to actually pick up on everything you were talking about Heidi and I mean these hikes I've seen the pictures um and they have always sounding amazing whenever you speak about them um and you have an obvious love of the outdoors of nature but what actually got you into conservation and why are you into it so I got into conservation specifically because there's so many unique habitats at the bottom of the ocean and on the seafloor that normal people don't really get the chance to see and so we don't really think about it and because we don't think about it a lot of damage happens to these habitats or we just don't really understand them and these habitats really need our protection and better management systems to make sure we aren't just going to destroy these very unique and sensitive habitats like sponge grounds for example they're very vulnerable so you're saying that you're really interested in sponge grounds and kind of that thing like the whole entire ecosystem which makes sense um because like you say the underwater world is not entirely discovered as of yet which is quite exciting but what got you to that point can you talk a little bit more about like your university career what got you started and how did you develop this interest into something so specific yeah, so I first learned about like the deep sea in high school. And when I found out about how cool and just weird the deep sea was, I wanted to study that. And so I did my bachelor's at Oregon State University in biology with a focus in marine biology. And they didn't at the time have that big of a research on deep sea uh, biology or deep sea ecosystems but there was some like benthic ecology researchers there that I was able to get involved with and then while I was at Oregon State University I really wanted to study abroad at Bangor University in Wales and like the timing there was conflicting time with when I could go to Bangor, Wales, and then this course I really wanted to take that was essentially marine biology boot camp. And so I decided I'd just wait and apply for my master's there. And I wanted to go to Bangor, Wales, because there were researchers specifically that were looking into deep sea habitats, as well as I was interested in renewable energy at the time as well. And so I applied for my master's and I got into it. And I really loved the program. I thought it was super cool. And then I met my master supervisor and uh, (laughs) he is this, I don't know, he's, he's this very brilliant man, but he's very terrifying at the same time when you don't know him. (laughs) Hannah knows what I'm talking about. I think, I think I said he was larger than life. Um, He's an absolutely fantastic person and scientist. And yeah, he, he is, he's a great character. But yeah, I'm very glad that you uh, waited and did your master's when you did, because that's where we met. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad your timeline worked out like that, but I'll let you yeah. continue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So Andy, my supervisor, he he had a project on deep sea sponge grounds. And initially I was like, sponge grounds, sponges, huh? I don't really know if I want to do that, but I really wanted to get into the deep sea field. And so we talked and we he ended up choosing me as a student for this project and oh my god it was the best thing that's ever happened to me it this world completely absorbed me and seeing how amazing this like sponge ground was it just it drew up this passion in me that I wanted to continue researching after my master's and so then there was a project a PhD position that was listed in like 2017, in the fall of 2017, that was exactly what I wanted to do. I was still going to look at uh, the same seamount that my master's project was on, the same sponge ground, just everything about it. And it was what I wanted to a T. And so I applied and somehow I got the position. So that's that's kind of where I'm at now. 
definitely seems like a little bit of luck with the timings because you met Hannah, but yeah. also definitely a lot of hard work on your behalf, like making sure that you're seeking out these people at Oregon State University to get the most out of your education and then being quite brave actually and looking at the other side of the world and being like, yeah, Wales, Wales sounds cool. And now you're in Norway. Like, I think it's very easy to look back on our lives and think, yeah, no, that was mostly luck. But realistically, you've put all that work into it and you've just followed your ambition, which I think is really inspiring. Thanks. It's, I don't know. A lot of the times I feel like it is luck. It is. It's kind of like luck and work and then the stars have to align and everything kind of falls into place. Um, but you kind of forget that before before things actually happen, like before you get that job or that PhD position, I think. Yeah. Um, so yeah, why the sea? So obviously you seem to always have this interesting kind of conservation and the wider world and looking into what we actually call like conservation mysteries. But is there anything particularly that attracted you to the sea? I have always loved the ocean. Like ever since I was a child, my dad and I, we would... Uh, whenever we went to Maryland, where his family is from, we would walk on the beach, collect shells, and every single time we went on like vacation where there was the sea, we would always explore all around it, check out tide pools. I remember in Portugal, I, when I was a kid, there was a bunch of like sea cucumbers that were washed up on the shore, and I really wanted to save them. And so like... I had my dad and I just like pick up these sea cucumbers and throw them into the ocean (laughs) (laughs) thinking that we were making a difference. And then like as a kid, when I moved, when I was back in the States, um, one of my favorite TV shows was SpongeBob. And so it's this, I don't know, the sea always was there for me and is this a big passion of mine. So was it SpongeBob that made you interested in sponges or was it this project with this super this wonderful supervisor at Bangor? It was the project uh actually because before that I didn't really give sponges that much thought. I I knew about them but I didn't really know how amazing they are. That's what I'm super excited about over like the next 30 40 minutes that we're just going to get so excited about sponges and actually let people know what they are because there is just so much stuff that I want to hear about uh, from you, Heidi. But before we get onto that, my first question is, what is a sponge ground? What is a seamount? What is an ocean ridge? Because I feel like these are all really important themes of your work. Well, it was a three-part question. (laughs) Uh, Not a problem. So, Sponge grounds, they are habitats that are made up of large structure-forming sponges, where these sponges also tend to be the most dominant organism, either in terms of abundance, so how many they are, or biomass, so like how big they are. And these sponge grounds, uh, they're kind of like coral reefs where they draw in a lot of the local animals, and they provide shelter, they provide homes. for some fish species, they use them as like a nursery ground where they lay their eggs and raise their youth there. They also act as like foraging grounds and provide food for a lot of different animals that are there. And then overall, they help with like the filtering of the local water column and just improving this filtration system, I guess, in the simplest terms. And then a seamount is an underwater mountain. And so seamounts are pretty cool habitats or pretty cool like features in the ocean because they do affect like the water currents. And a lot of the times there are these dense habitats that are forming, not necessarily sponge grounds, but you can have like coral, coral reefs and just other types of habitats are forming on the seamounts. And then an Arctic or a mid-ocean ridge is like, I guess the simplest way to explain it. It's like a, it's like a mountain range essentially, but just underwater. And there's a lot of like uh, geothermal activity that's occurring here um, or around there. So yeah, like an underwater mountain, mountain range. Okay. Awesome. I have some of the best just 
paintings that are going on in my head right now. Um, having I spend most of my working life in the shallow, about five meters deep. So yeah, really painting a picture in my head of where it is that you see on some of your pictures and work is super exciting. Um, and just picking up as well, your work is looking at the sponges and what you've spoken about, their structure, their distribution. But what is what is spatial distribution? Does it come at different levels? Um, and how does this relate to those communities that you just mentioned within a sponge ground? Yeah, so spatial distribution, it does come at different levels. So you have like the fine scale uh, spatial patterns that are occurring like within a habitat so this is more for uh, the animals that don't move and so where they're placed in a habitat uh, can tell you a lot about what's going on there so like if you have corals that are positioned higher up on like rocks or on top of some of the sponges it can tell you that okay maybe there's better food sources like in the higher water column that's accessible to them or if they're positioned in a certain way, so like maybe if all the sponges are facing like a certain direction, that can tell you about the water currents. And so this is where, this is the direction that the water's coming to. And you can also learn a bit about like for some species that, how their reproduction is. And so where uh, maybe juveniles are settled or like the babies are settled around the adult uh, adults of like a population and so that's that's more of what you can see in the fine scale like spatial patterns and then large scale the distribution patterns it can tell you more about like the environmental variables that influence where these animals are living and like what conditions they require to live in just based on their range or where where you're finding them if that makes sense that yeah, makes that great makes, sense yeah yeah thank you for describing it like that it's like finally starting to click in my brain but before we go to, uh, too deep into like sponges and the nitty-gritty questions that we've got what is a sponge what is a sponge uh good question so sponges are sessile or generally non-moving invertebrates or animals that don't have a vertebrae um they don't have true tissues or organs, but you can't really say that they have a specific shape or color because they come in all different forms of like just shapes and colors and sizes. And so they're a little difficult to describe specifically based on their morphology. You have some sponges that are encrusting where they grow on a surface, some sponges that look like little bushes or balls. You have these big sponges that look like barrels or tubes or vases. And then you have some sponges that might look like a flower or even a harp. Uh, and there's this one really cool sponge that is that kind of looks like the alien E.T., like his head <laughs> on a rod. And uh, like you can see a video of that in on YouTube called like the Forest of the Weird. And it's amazing. Um, but yeah, so generally all sponges, they have these pores. They're covered in these pores called called ostia, where they like bring in the water for food and nutrients. And then they have like a larger hole called the osculum, where then they flush out this water and like the already filtered water and many sponges have like a skeleton made up of uh, a protein called like spongin and spicules which can be made up of either like silica or calcium carbonate but some species lack spicules altogether or they have a different protein so they're kind of hard to describe but they're really cool no, that sounds like there's a lot to them. Yes. But they're individual, which I quite like. But I still don't think I'll be able to go and identify one. Is it that they just occur in these like deep ocean waters that you've described? But you've also mentioned that they're with corals. Like, Where do they actually occur in the water column? Uh, yeah, so so like it's it's difficult to describe how they look like. 
sponges are also can occur everywhere in all like aquatic habitats. So you can have freshwater sponges in rivers or lakes. You can have uh, shallow water sponges uh, in like coral reefs. You can also have sponges that are as deep as you can get, like beyond 3000 meters deep. Um, and then there's some species of sponges that show up in uh, underwater caves or in just remote cave systems with water. That's so cool. They sound like such a hardy species to exist in so many different areas of the ocean. Yeah. So you just mentioned about how they kind of like take in water and then release clean water. Would that be recognised as like an ecosystem service that they provide? And is there any other kind of positives for the environment? Yes. So this would like help improve the what's known as a benthic pelagic coupling. So the relationship between the benthic or the bottom of the ocean or like the seafloor and then the pelagic, which is like the water column above. And so they're bringing in these nutrients and like they're bringing in this water uh, that can then allow for surrounding animals to have access to like the food that's in the water as well and then they filter it out yeah they they provide a lot of ecosystem functions like i mentioned earlier they uh can provide like shelter for different animals like especially smaller invertebrates like crustaceans um they also they can act as a food source for some organisms and yeah so what what do they provide food for like what are they a food source for so there are quite a few different animals that do feed on sponges uh, or there's not there's not that many but there's still enough that feed on sponges so like you can have sea urchins or sea stars that feed on sponges and then like nudibranchs and I guess in the shallower regions, uh, some species of sea turtles feed on sponges. And uh, so it's funny that like sea stars feed on sponges because in uh, like in SpongeBob, realistically, you wouldn't have Patrick and SpongeBob be friends. Patrick would actually be trying to eat SpongeBob. I feel there's a lot of these circumstances in a lot of TV where we're like, actually, yeah, like biologically, these two wouldn't get on, but you know what? For a show, it's fine. Yeah, it is. And like, it's, it's, I don't know, it's really cool. I've seen in some of my work, like we've actually seen the sea stars that are feeding on um, the sponges. And like on one of the cruises I went on, we, the ROV or the like robot, that we had uh, diving into this habitat, we ended up flipping over one of the sea stars to see if it actually was feeding on the sponge and its stomach was completely like extruding out when we had flipped it over. It was so cool. I think that's a great place to sideline for a second about the way starfish feed, because I think that's super interesting. And obviously you're talking about its stomach being out um, and how how does a starfish, because when you look at a starfish, it hasn't got a clear like bunch of teeth or a mouth. Um, how do they chomp down on a sponge? Yeah, so when star- sea stars are uh, feeding, they like their stomach essentially like comes out and just because their stomach comes out and then there's enzymes to break down like the material and then they start to absorb it, right? They create create a soup. Yeah, they start to start to divert di- their stomach, digest the animal, and soup it all back up. Sounds yeah. tasty. <laughs> yeah. Hey, if it works, it works. We've got like birds that regurgitate food for their babies. We've got cows that have to like basically throw up their own food to eat it multiple times. Like, hey, if things are getting fed, things are getting fed. It's fine. <laughs> Who are we yeah. to judge? I just don't want to attend any of those buffets. Just saying. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> We're not asking you to. It's fine. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lexi. That's very kind of you. <laughs> um what i was about to ask heidi was with these animals that might be thinking about chomping down or even just you know having a bit of competition or between sponges of no i i'm gonna live here not you do they have defense mechanisms that stop them potentially being eaten or kind of 
establishing the space they want to live in so that they don't get too crowded? Yes. So that is an excellent question, Hannah. So because they, sponges tend to have like a very soft body and no like exoskeleton for protection, they do produce like bioactive compounds to act as a chemical defense against uh, predators as well as against pathogens. And so these compounds or some, some of the compounds can also warn off species from like settling on a rock or nearby or they can signal to like other members of their like group like hey this is a great place to settle like come here so it's pretty it's pretty cool and some of these compounds have like antibacterial or antifungal no antiviral uh, properties a lot of researchers are pretty fascinated by these compounds do they, by any chance, use those compounds to communicate with each other? Or can they communicate with each other on any level that we're aware of yet? As far as I am aware, yes, they can use the compounds to like communicate. So like I was saying, they can signal to uh, other members of their species, like this is a good place to settle or, or whatnot. Hmm. I'm just thinking about all of like, because one of the things when it comes to when we look at our, any ecosystem is looking at kind of what the ecosystem does. And as we've mentioned, these different ecosystem services, but kind of what you've picked up on there is something that's quite interesting, almost from like a commercial or market point of view or a research point of view is, is the role of maybe these chemicals in medicine. Um, is there any other commercial uses that are being pursued when it comes to sponges? So I, I know that they're like the bioactive compounds are being researched for the medical purposes, like you had just mentioned, for like pharmaceuticals because of the antibacterial and antiviral properties. Um, there's also research on their like skeletal properties uh, for future technology. But to be honest, like on the biotechnology side of sponges, I personally don't have a lot of experience with that, but I know that there are a lot of. Uh, like researchers in the project I'm affiliated in who are specifically looking into this. So I've got a question that's not quite about as interesting or as in-depth as the use of sponges in their um, commercial properties or even uh, like pharmaceutical properties. But what is your favorite sponge, Heidi? Do you have one? Uh, that's difficult. So I really like uh, some of the carnivorous sponges. What? They're right. <laughs> okay, we need to go into this. Uh, yeah, so there's this one uh, carnivorous sponge that's called like the harp sponge. And it, it looks exactly like a harp. And it's just really cool. So you have this this rod and then, or this like bar, and then these rods are sticking up into the water column kind of like a harp or like an upside down harp and then it has like these little balls and on each of these rods there are these little like barbs or hooks to catch um, small prey and so those those sponges are really cool but then in the in the habitat in the sponge gun that I'm looking at I really like the glass sponges I find them super beautiful um, and I don't know they're it's just really calming and very serene. Can you describe what a glass sponge looks like? Uh, yes. So glass sponges, uh, they they kind of look like uh, like vases or barrels. Um, and the ones in my habitat, they are white um, or like almost some of them are almost like translucent and they just look like these vases or even trumpets. And then they are made up of like a, like the silica spicules that are essentially like fused in a lattice like shape. If that makes sense. It does make sense because I've Googled the image. And I think you've described it very, very well. But we'll also put a link to an image of a glass sponge in the show notes. Thank you. Because they are beautiful. I see what you mean by calming and stuff. Um, so Heidi, can you tell me how sponges make more sponges? Like, can you talk us through the reproduction cycle? 
Yes. So again, sponges are a little bit difficult to describe. They aren't, they aren't easy. They don't follow, follow like specific rules. So you have sponge, some sponges that do sexual reproduction where they essentially like release their sperm and the ova into the water column and they fertilize and then they go and eventually like settle. It's not that these juvenile sponges are, uh, they can actually move. So they go off and they go settle somewhere else. Some sponges, instead of doing that, some sponges end up just having uh, like kind of live born babies. So like their, their babies are kind of like they crawl out of the tissues okay yeah sounds terrifying (laughs) yeah it's 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 very interesting and then some sponges they have like this budding system where like they end up making little tiny versions of this of themselves like on their body and then it ends up like just popping off and budding and then sometimes with some sponges if they if they're like fragmented or if they break if those fragments have the right uh, cells, then they can form new sponges. That's really cool because that's almost like a defense mechanism itself. If it gets mushed, that then suddenly you can still get more sponges and it can recover. That's that's super interesting. Yeah, it's also really interesting that they more or less cover every type of reproduction. Just like, nah, we fancy this one today. It's fine. Or this species of sponge fancies this type of reproduction. Which is kind of cool, but also I imagine not easy to study. No, it's it's definitely not easy to study, <laughs> especially in the deep sea. Have you ever found like a new species of sponge that had not yet been discovered, or do you hope to one day? Yes, I I know that there's there's so many species that haven't been described. So there's like about nine thousand sponge species so far that have been identified and described, and it's thought that there's over like. 25,000 that have yet to be identified and described. What would you call a sponge if you discovered one? Would you just Uh, call it like the Heidi sponge or would you base it on what it looked like? Okay, I'm sorry, I'm really sidetracking now. (laughs) (laughs) No, I probably wouldn't call it the Heidi sponge because I think that goes against rules of taxonomy. It does, to be fair. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'd probably either name it after one of my late, or after my late supervisor, Hans Sore Rapp. Um, or I would, because he, he was like a sponge expert. He was one of the sponge experts. Or I'd name it after Spongebob. Nice. Or like Squidward two or something. Two very noble names, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're two really great options. <laughs> how old are sponges? That's just like going on the, the naming them. And how old is it? How old is this thing that someone might be named after? <laughs> Oh my god, they can live for so long. So from my understanding, it's pretty difficult to actually age them. I know that some researchers can, or like, I know that they use spicules to age some sponges, but I'm not quite sure the science behind it. Uh, But some sponges can essentially be like centuries, years old. Wow. That's so cool. That is cool. Yeah, because I've seen things floating around that like, either on Twitter or things like this, where it's like, oh, we don't know how old some sponges are. They could be upwards of a thousand. And this is what's so cool about a lot of our marine life is that, especially when you get to the deep sea, things are very slow growing, which puts them at risk because if they get disturbed, then they take a long time to recover. But it's realizing that there are these animals that live for such an immense amount of time compared to our lifetimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you mentioned that there's like thousands of species of sponges and even more yet to be discovered. But are they are sponges at risk as a as a whole? Like is this something we should be worried about with, you know, ongoing decimation of our environments? Uh so I would say yes. So especially like sponge grounds. Uh the sponges that live in like the sponge grounds, they tend to be very slow growing and long living. Uh they also tend okay. to be very fragile to external disruption or disturbances and also with like climate change um, because a lot of these sponges have like a silica based skeleton or like a calcium carbonate based skeleton the increasing ocean acidification can impact those 
compounds that these sponges need to build their like backbones essentially okay that makes sense so i feel we've digged into your brain enough about just sponges i'd really like to get onto a little bit more about what you do day to day in your phd and like know how you research sponges like what does a field trip entail and what does that look like and what do you get up to yeah so most of my day-to-day work is actually on a computer uh but and i i'm looking at video footage that's been collected from uh, a sponge ground and so to collect this footage we have to go onto a ship and off of the coast of norway to like between Norway and Greenland, essentially, there's this, uh, the Arctic Mid-Ocean Ridge. And so there's a seamount, Schultz Bank, and then we sent down a um, remotely operated vehicle. So this is like a, ma- a man-controlled robot that we send down to the seamount. And then the seamount, or once the robot gets to the seamount, it starts to do these transects or like they do surveys along like a certain line or they start to collect uh, some of the sponges. And they've also done some experiments where they like have chambers down to do like uh, incubation experiments. And so the footage I'm using for my project is from these ROV surveys or the remotely operated vehicle surveys. Yeah, so essentially they're exploring the entire seamount and just getting a really good idea of what the seamount looks like. And then when we get back home from from our cruise, then I start to dive into the video footage and start to plot and document everything that I'm seeing here. That's really cool, the amount of images that you must capture in these kind of surveys. Um, and I know that obviously you've spoken about the ROVs, you also work with AUVs. Um, so what's the difference between those? Yeah, so uh, AUV is an autonomous underwater vehicle. And so that is essentially we put in like coordinates or like a specific trajectory we want this AUV to travel. And then we send it on its way. It's not connected to a cable like a remotely operated vehicle is. And so instead, it just it does its own survey. And while it's uh, scanning the desired habitat or the desired like coordinates um it takes pictures and creates like a photo mosaic essentially and then when it's done doing its scan it comes back up to the surface and we get the signal on the ship that's ready to be picked up and then again similar to like what i do with the video footage i then look at the imagery footage instead with the av and just picking up on something you said there what is a photo mosaic a photo mosaic is essentially like it's like a large image or like a set of images that show you that are overlapped to create like a big picture of what we're seeing so like instead of having one picture of just a very small point of interest where the photo mosaic is able to capture the entire like area by uh collecting a series of footages that are then overlapped that makes sense kind of like if you're trying to make a panoramic photo without a panoramic lens yeah exactly to stitch photos together exactly um so you use both auv and rov which do you prefer is there like a limitation to one or do you just use both because you have both um technologies available so both have uh like pros and cons to them AUVs are really Mm -hmm. nice because they don't have that human interaction associated with them so you can just say okay AUV I want you to go to this location and then while it's doing its job you can work on like other things that you need to be doing such as maybe processing some of the samples that you collect but then ROVs are really nice because you you do have that human interaction so you can do this dive and say you're just exploring the habitat and then you see something really cool. And so with the ROV, you can actually go and investigate that and look at it and take really beautiful pictures. And then maybe even you can then collect it if it's like either a certain size or if you don't think it's 
super rare. And so then you can collect these animals and you can bring them up with the ROV. And that's really nice. And there's a lot of applications that you can actually do with the ROV. So like I was saying, you can bring down like these incubation chambers uh, to put over the sponges and then study their like filtration rate essentially um, and have that there over a period of time with the ROV um, essentially setting it up. Or you can have blade cores where you carry them, the ROV carries them down and then takes like sediment samples or samples of the sediment and then brings them back up. Or you can just have like scoops. So there's a lot of things that you can do with the ROV. But the problem, one of the big problems with the ROV is that sometimes it's really difficult to have a very stable like altitude or if there's different purposes, like different researchers that have different um, desires for this particular dive, it can be difficult to have like consistent footage that would be useful for like me when I'm analyzing the footage because I need specific types of footage and uh, I have specific requirements that I need these ROVs to like follow. That's not always the case. So how frequently do you guys go out and collect data? Because obviously with a project like a PhD, there's a natural stopping point of three to four years, but I imagine there could be no end. <laughs> yeah, so my research group, we tend to go out uh, about once a year during the summer uh, for a few weeks to collect either samples and video footage. For my project, I already have all of the data that I need. Um, I essentially got that within my first year because there have been uh, cruises before I joined. So then I'm analyzing footage that I didn't necessarily have a say in. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. So you mentioned there samples and stuff. When you go out on a cruise, what else do you collect other than this footage and these images that are most useful for your data, yeah. for your project? So we collect actual like animals that are in these habitats, like the physical animals, so that then we can use them to confirm the identifications of what I'm seeing in my footage. Um, for some people, they need uh, multiple samples of like different sponges for like tissue work um, to look at like population genomics. Some of my colleagues, they'll need like actual living sponges for some of their work. And so we tend to collect a variety of like actual animals from these habitats and then bring them up to the surface. And sometimes we also collect like sediment samples so that then we can see, okay, how thick is like the spicule mat or like the spicule carpet or what animals are living in the sediment. That's really interesting. I'm imagining the inside of the research vessel. And because you're talking about, obviously there's samples that you have to pick up that might be stored, but also that colleagues need living are these colleagues on the boat with you or do these then get taken back to Bergen so can you like give us an idea of what the inside of a research vessel looks like like obviously I imagine you have somewhere you go and eat and the beds and hang out and then is there an aquarium uh yeah so the research vessel I'm most familiar with is the GeoSARS and essentially like they have multiple uh multiple labs so the different team members they all essentially have their or like the different research groups that are on this cruise they essentially have their own lab and so the one i work in mostly is like the the uh the wet room where then we bring all of our uh samples that are meant to be like processed and then like stored in and preserved for like ethanol but then downstairs or like on one of the bottom layers of the ship, you have like the aquarium system where it's a lot cooler and you have this filtration system with different tanks uh, to keep these sponges alive. Um, and then on there's another room that has this like door that opens up directly to the sea, essentially, so that you can deploy like uh, conductivity, temperature and depth like equipment. So CTD equipment off of it to get information about like what 
the water is like, so like what the temperature, salinity, and dissolved oxygen of the water is in these particular habitats. And then on the upper uh, parts of the ship, you have the cafeteria system. And then above that, you have like a lounge where everyone mostly gathers and does a lot of their work when we aren't doing uh, sampling process. And then there's this TV room uh, where the ROV pilots sit and they control the ROVs there. And then it's also for the people who are specifically like wanting this ROV dive, they'll go in there and tell the ROV pilots like what to do. That definitely sounds like there's a lot going on. So is there much downtime when you're at sea? Like you have any time to think about what you're going to write up or even just think about life? (laughs) Uh, Probably the most downtime you get is like when you're traveling, when you're first traveling to your first destination, uh, that's when you start that's when like the groups are having these uh, discussions about uh, what we're going to do for the cruise and like making the plans and preparing everything. So that's a lot faster. But then uh, when we get to our stations and start to get our samples and do the ROV dives and uh, deploy the CTD cast, it's virtually just nonstop work. Uh, There's always someone awake, always someone working and just very busy, busy work. But then, I don't know, it's really nice too. When you do have downtime, it's it's fun and you can like catch up with the group members. You can tell stories, sing songs. There's a TV that you can watch with like movies. Uh, I think there's also a Wii that you can play <laughs> if, you have, if you're lucky to have downtime. Sounds like there's all of the important things yeah. on this boat. <laughs> Yeah, hobbies are encouraged. (laughs) Yeah, I think I actually heard about someone um, taking like one of the things they packed was a box of wool when they either went on an Arctic cruise or something um, similar to what you're talking about uh, so that they could crochet and knit just for like the whole period that they were out there. Yeah. That is what I would do. I don't know if that if this is true or this is like your future dream. <laughs> yes, I am theorizing and predicting the future instead. Um, so Heidi, obviously for Lexi and I preparing for the show, we've read some of your work, we've looked through your profiles. Um, but can you tell us a bit about kind of your publications, um, where you've been published, what you've been published on, and anything that you want to reflect on regarding that? Uh, yeah, so I have two papers where I'm first author on, and the first paper is on the Schultz Bank. It's focusing on the small scale spatial patterns of like the dominating uh, species on the summit of the Schultz Bank seamount, because that's essentially like the, the densest and richest part of the sponge ground. And so I wanted to look at that. And then the other paper that I'm first author on is looking at the megafauna community or like the larger animal community in Sognefjord, which is Norway's longest and deepest fjord. And it's like one of the world's longest and deepest fjord. Like it's not the longest and deepest, but it's part of that group. And it's just this beautiful fjord that's absolutely stunning. But there really hasn't been a lot of research on the megafauna community, or at least not a lot of like published work on the megafauna community. And so that's what I was looking at there. And then I am co-author on three other papers, um, and all of that is focusing on um, different aspects of the Schultz Bank sponge ground or seamount. That's really interesting that you have been looking at both the fjords and the kind of the deep sea areas. What what is similar and what is different about the two? And just just to confirm for people that maybe aren't used to talking about fjords, kind of what what is a fjord? Yeah, so a fjord is it's kind of similar to like an estuary. So it's essentially like this this water inlet from the ocean uh, that goes inland. And so like, as you move more inland, it becomes more freshwater. And fjords are created by uh, glaciers in the past. And so 
some fjords can be very, very, very deep and essentially have deep sea communities such as the Sogni Fjord, which is about, I think it's 1300 meters deep at its deepest point. And this fjord, Sogni Fjord, is very unique um, because it has a very shallow sill. And a sill is essentially like uh, this this underwater hill at the mouth or the front of the fjord that's closest to the uh, ocean front that essentially creates like this bowl or this big basin in the fjord. So all the water within, uh, like past the sill, can stay in the fjord for a very long time. And so it doesn't get like uh, refreshed that often or there's not as much like mixing as in like say an estuary where there's not a sill um, and it's just like a water just the ocean water and the fresh water being able to mix yeah so you've mentioned this mixing a couple of times how does the mixing of the water affect the diversity if like water doesn't get to mix that frequently essentially it can become stagnant because you're not getting like fresh oxygen entering the water source. So just imagine if you have this bowl of water that's been sitting in your sink for a very long time and eventually it becomes stagnant and maybe it's a little bit dirty. There's not really much going on. And this is kind of similar to like the fjord basin. And then suddenly you turn on your sink and then you bring in like the fresh water and it flushes that the older water out. Does that make sense? That was a fabulous analogy. Okay. That was brilliant. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, and I can imagine if yeah, they're not mixing that that can then have other effects. Yeah. Yeah, so it can have like other effects. So you have to have or animals that are living in these habitats, if there's not a lot of mixing, uh, they have to be adapted to this or they have to be used to these low oxygen conditions. And for like Sognifjord, it's pretty interesting because there's, it still like is fairly dense. You do have a lot of animals that are living here. And so it's thought that, okay, maybe these are adapted to this low level, low like oxygen conditions. That's really interesting thinking about how they can adapt um, and how that then affects these different communities. And obviously you've, you've been drawing these parallels between um, the deep sea and fjords as how fjords can be a study area. But obviously your PhD is still ongoing. You said you've been in Bergen now for about three years. Is there more, more articles on the way that we can look out for or at the point in your PhD, are you focusing on the, the thesis and the the end product um, that for the people that do PhDs all, all know comes when you get there? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I am uh, like just completely covered or completely like absorbed by video footage of the Schultz Bank. And so what I'm doing right now is I'm analyzing uh, about seven videos of that were collected from 2016 to 2018 of different areas on the Schultz Bank, and this is gonna, this is like my baby. This is the main part of my project, and uh, it's going very slowly, but I'm hoping to be done. I don't know in a few months. I keep saying that, but <laughs> so like this part of the project, I am really looking at the community patterns of this of the seamount and like what differences there are in these communities as you go up from the bottom of the seamount, which is about 3,000 meters deep, to the top of the seamount, which is about 580 meters. And so I'm looking at these different communities all along the slopes and seeing what type of like environmental drivers influences these communities and like where they're forming. And that's definitely on the way. I have a potential or I have uh, some collaboration with a researcher in Cambridge, Emily Mitchell, where we'll be looking at like the fine, more at the fine scale spatial patterns of like some of these sponges. Her research is really cool. I heavily recommend checking her out. We will certainly make sure. Yeah, 
(laughs) make sure there's some links to her work and just kind of on that note of your it sounds like you are essentially working towards mapping how these communities change on an underwater mountain um is there is there a lot of work that had been done on that previously and obviously you're using some different methods to do that um but when you started what was the kind of the base of literature what did that look like so there has been like some uh research on like seamounts and communities on seamounts um a lot of them have looked haven't really been necessarily like sponge grounds but there's been like a variety of different communities and they've looked at just the different types of habitats on the seamount but looking at sponge grounds itself that's that's still pretty new we're still learning about sponge grounds and how like this the seamount influences these sponges and where they're distributed that's super exciting yeah I guess looking at it you're just trying to paint the initial picture because we can't figure out what's going on if we don't know what's there that's going to be really really cool but like you say a lot of videos and a lot of hours spent in front of a computer screen figuring that out which I don't envy you for really um I do have a question though so you've kind of opened up this world of sponges and I have a greater appreciation for them than I did when I first started this chat with you but I've never seen any sort of like citizen science project with sponges so they feel really inaccessible and unattainable still as somebody that isn't a researcher so I was just wondering is there any way that we can get a little bit more involved or learn a little bit more like if there are any resources you can point us to uh I can definitely point you to some good resources so so like my phd project is affiliated with this horizon 2020 funded project called sponges and the work that's been done through sponges has been amazing there's a lot of like outreach going on through this project and it's like the collaborators and the partners within the sponge project are all over Europe essentially and then there's some uh, partners are in the United States as well but there is a lot of resources on their webpage uh, for how to like really learn more about sponges and sponge grounds as a whole and then also different types of vulnerable marine ecosystems. I've certainly picked that up as you've been talking is how Mm. we don't know much about these sponge grounds but the things they do, the functions, these ecosystem services they provide, how you can see them mirrored in some of our other marine habitats that we're certainly going to be covering during this podcast season. Um, So I think that's really exciting, thinking about how the ocean connects. My kind of getting towards final questions for you is if you could, though, get people to understand just one thing. We have covered so many things about sponges. What would it be? I think one thing that I wish people would understand a little bit more is that so there's a I know that I struggled a bit when I first started working with sponges like I didn't really appreciate them and that was something I didn't really like I wasn't really that excited about was working with sponges I think just changing that narrative and the mindset of like okay sponges are actually really beautiful and trying to think of them in that light rather than like oh it's a sponge or like oh you work with sponges. Are they all used for like uh, to wash dishes with kind of thing? That's that's something I get asked. I think you said it so well there that I think the one thing you want people to learn is that they are amazing creatures and to take the time to get to know them a little bit. Because who knows, like you, it might ignite a passion that was unexpected. Lexi, yeah. do you have any anything exactly. left to ask, add? I mean, we could go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to absolutely hold myself back from asking all of the questions. I guess just a nice question to end on is, if is there anything that you would like to talk about, Heidi, that we didn't necessarily cover or we didn't necessarily ask you? Oh my God, there's so much. I want to talk about I could keep talking about sponges and sponge grants all day I guess one thing I I'm not sure if I really mentioned much was so these sponges they they act like a or sponge grounds act like a or improve the local biodiversity right but I didn't really go into like what type of animals live here and like what type of animals can live in sponge grounds 
No, you did not. Let's talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, so like really. there are the sponge ground I'm looking at, um, it's a multi specific sponge ground. So this means that there's multiple different types of sponges that live here. And so you can have a multi-specific type of sponge ground, or you can have a mono-specific type of sponge ground, where it's really only like one type of sponge ground that's, or one type of sponge that is the dominating species here. Um, but on the Schultz Bank, it's multi-specific. And here, you see so much life. Like there are corals, there's ascidians, anemones, um, there's sea stars that are feeding all over the place, lots of polychaetes and urchins and crustaceans, and some really cool like sea spiders as well. And then the fish-wise, uh, I've seen a lot of Arctic skate eggs all throughout this habitat. So that's that's an indication that this habitat's being used as a as a nursery ground for these skates species and then i've seen the greenland halibut that's present all throughout this sponge ground which is also a uh, fisheries targeted species and then lots of grenadiers and then during towards the basin or the base of the seamount i see lots of like eel pouts and snailfish and so it's just really cool to see these changes in diversity um on the seamount and how how diverse and how many species actually live here so that's really cool. No, I think that's a lovely roundup to really highlight the importance of one studying, you know, the marine environment or the, the water environment, but also like how important sponges are to create like this base of biodiversity in the area that you're studying, but also in other places globally. Yeah. Agreed. Heidi, uh, just as we're wrapping up, what is... Is there recent things that have happened recently that, you know, have got you so excited about sponges that everyone can go get excited about? Yes, actually. So earlier this week, uh, mid-February 2021, there has been recent news about this amazing discovery off in Antarctica. So the scientists, they were drilling uh, holes in the Antarctic ice shelf and then dropping like a camera down the holes. And they ended up uh, coincidentally having their camera like land on top of this boulder that's 240 kilometers away from the like Antarctic ice shelf front. And so it's completely like just thick ice that's far away from like the ocean essentially. And on this boulder, there are sponges. There are sock sponges and they're just happily thriving, just being happy little sponges. And it's such an amazing discovery because people tend to think, okay, so we can't like first they think okay not a lot of life lives in the deep sea but lots of research has shown there's so much life in the deep sea and then they're like okay maybe there's not a lot of life in uh, like under sea ice or ice shelves and now there's been some recent uh literature about yes there are life under ice shelves and now this discovery is just amazing so yeah check that out it's pretty recent Antarctic ice shelf sponges it's really that's cool. really cool and that also goes back to what Lexi said about these sponges being ubiquitous in so many places um and not that there is so much left for us to discover as well yeah that's the point and when it comes to biodiversity never assume they'll prove you wrong in the end <laughs> yes it's t- nature will prove you wrong <laughs> I love that <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I wanted to ask you, as soon as you mentioned that you could talk about sponges all day, um, if people wanted to get in touch and follow you online, what, how would they be able to get in touch? Could you share any social media with us? Yes, I can. I just have to find my handle. <laughs> okay, so you can follow me on Twitter at Heidi K. Meyer. And then I definitely recommend following the Deep Sea Sponges handle, which uh showcases all of the amazing research coming out of the sponges project cool i will definitely be following those things um but yeah thank you so much for chatting to us today and listening to us 
um, guests and listeners. Have a wild day. Thank you. Okay, bye. bye. Thank you for listening today. As always, we have been Wild About Conservation and you have been awesome. Please do leave us a review. We would really appreciate it and we do read them all. To keep exploring with us, drop us an email or find us on our socials. All the links are in our description and the show notes. If you enjoy our show and want to support us, we are also on Patreon. Just £1 a month, 25p an episode, will cover our creation costs. And anything above that, we donate to charity. Thank you to those of you that are already helping us to keep creating. Our chosen charity for this season are the British Divers Marine Life Rescue, who are an organisation dedicated to the rescue and well-being of all marine animals in distress around the UK. Donations will go to training teams of volunteers and maintaining specialised equipment that is vital for their work. Don't forget to look out for our next episode next Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If we aren't there, do let us know. And remember, step outside and get wild about conservation. Bye. Bye! How do you get wild? Watching wildlife documentaries. Wildflower painting. Diving. Wild swimming. Ocean watching. Rock climbing. Bird watching. Listening to podcasts. Hill walks. Visiting a wildlife charity. Mm-hmm.